Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. I lived shadowed by an uncertainty about my parents' marriage and a sense of some fundamental instability lurking just beneath the surface. Lynn and Dick were held up as a model couple by many of their friends and were profiled as such in several newspaper pieces, celebrated especially for the ways my father made my mother's business success possible. They complemented each other well. My father, the extravagant romantic, my mother, the cool realist. As my father would give disquisitions on a new play or whoop excitedly with his buddies as they watched a sports game, my mother would break in to summon everyone firmly to the dinner table. If my father luxuriated in meandering after-dinner conversations that continued even after coffee and dessert, it was my mother who reminded everyone how late it was and briskly ushered guests out the door. That's Priscilla Gilman, writer, former professor of English, and author of the recent memoir, The Critic's Daughter. Priscilla's story glitters on the surface, a rarefied New York City childhood, highly successful parents who were at the epicenter of literary life, a world of intellectual stimulation and famous friends. But beneath that shiny exterior was a darker, harder truth. Things were very, very unhappy in the Gilman household, and Priscilla, as a young child, absorbed it all. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. Tell me about the landscape of your childhood. 333 Central Park West. That was an incredible historic building on Central Park West in 93rd Street. 
inhabited by a slew of people we would now consider luminaries, lots of PBS producers and artists and therapists. It was rent controlled. My parents paid about $140, $150 a month. And we were on Central Park West. Literally, my bedroom looked out onto the park. Huge three-bedroom apartment, paint was peeling, the tubs were chipped, but we didn't care because we were living in this kind of almost Sesame Street world. And I say that Sesame Street began in 1969. I was born in 1970. And the Upper West Side in the 70s, it wasn't all that safe. It certainly wasn't upscale but it was filled with academics and artists and writers and actors and interesting people who were at the center of intellectual and artistic culture. It's so amazing to hear you say that. That New York is a disappeared New York now. Absolutely. And when I think back on my childhood, there's this kind of wistfulness for that feeling of vibrancy and artistic fecundity and the sense that any night some person could come over to my parents' apartment bearing a magical story or uh, an exciting idea that they were developing, a project that they wanted to work on, that they wanted advice from my mother on or my father. And there was just this continual sense of discovery and excitement and wonder in my childhood. So you and your mother and your father and your younger sister, Claire, lived at 333 until you were about how old? Until I was eight. And when I was eight, in 1978, they bought their first apartment in New York City. They bought 44 West 77th Street. Uh, It's across the street from the Museum of Natural History. And I think they bought the apartment for about $150,000. And it was a 3,200 square foot apartment with the living room and my father's office fronting onto the Natural History Museum. We looked out over it because we were on the 10th floor. And I think the year that we bought that apartment, there was a drug rehab facility on the block. There was a neighborhood block association. It was just sort of starting to get cleaned up. But within a couple of years, Columbus Avenue exploded and became one of the chicest parts of the city. Tell me about the mother of your childhood? So my mother, Lynn Nesbitt, um, had moved to New York City in her early 20s from the Midwest as kind of the wide-eyed girl. She used to listen to the radio when she was a kid, and there was a show called Grand Central Station, Crossroads of a Thousand Lives. And she listened to that and said, I want to be in that place. I want to be in New York City, meeting exciting people and doing exciting things. And she worked her way up from being an assistant at a women's magazine to being the assistant to a literary agent. And when she was working for that literary agent, she got a manuscript from a Harvard medical student named Michael Crichton. And it was called The Andromeda Strain. And she signed him as a client and soon began representing everybody from Tom Wolfe to Hunter S. Thompson, Robert Caro. She represented Toni Morrison. Toni's first book was published in the year I was born, The Bluest Eye. And Rice, and Beatty, just a slew of, and high, low, and everything in between. So your mother was already successful. She was doing very well as a literary agent by the time you were born. Yes, yes, she was. 
she married my father when she was 27. She had three miscarriages before I was born. She had to have surgery on her uterus, um, one of the first kind of a pioneering surgery. And she was able to get pregnant and carry the baby to term. And she had me and my sister within 14 months of each other. And so she was in her early 30s, two young children, a vice president at ICM, International Creative Management in the literary department, representing a ton of incredible authors. And how about your father? So he, in the 60s, when he met my mom, I believe he was working at Newsweek when he met my mom. He was the theater critic, the staff theater critic for Newsweek, had an office. Um, Another example of how we've lost a lot in our culture. I don't think it's a staff theater critic at Newsweek anymore. And in 1967, he was hired to teach at the Yale School of Drama. And in the 60s and the 70s, He mainly taught dramaturgy or dramatic criticism, but he also did teach playwrights. He taught actors. Meryl Streep was one of his most beloved students. He taught Henry Winkler, Wendy Wasserstein, Sigourney Weaver, a whole bunch of performers, writers, directors at the Yale School of Drama. So he was up there two nights a week. He would stay in a hotel in New Haven uh, when we were in the city. And then we had a country house in Weston, Connecticut, where we spent our weekends. My father was a very powerful, formidable critic. Uh, He also wrote literary criticism. He had been the editor of the New Republic's literary section at one point. And he was known in public as being tough and difficult to please and rigorous and almost um, fear-inducing because of how honest and how ostensibly harsh he could be in some of his reviews. But In his personal life, he was warm and congenial and playful and affectionate. And he'd grown up in in Flatbush, Brooklyn, was very sort of down to earth and loved sports and loved deli food. My mother, who came from the Midwest, was a cooler customer. I would just describe my mother as, um, although she was author's advocate, she was nurturing talent, she was supporting people through their dark moments when they doubted if they could write or they doubted if they could produce. She's just a cooler, more rational person than my father. My father, even as he was that rigorous critic, he was essentially a romantic, an idealist, um, somebody who loved musical theater passionately. My mother was just more, she was very hardworking. She was very competent. She was worked incredibly hard and kept her cool in very difficult, tough situations. My father was more insecure. My father struggled with writer's block and he smoked compulsively. And I could tell as a young child that he was self-medicating with cigarettes. He could get irritable. He could get depressed if he wasn't producing enough writing. And my mother was very good at sort of laying down the law and saying, okay, you're going in your office now and you're going to come out in two hours and you're going to give me some pages. She was very good at pushing him. And my mother is a rock solid person. She was then, she is now. You can always count on her in a crisis. In Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking, my mother appears in one of the opening chapters of that book as the first person Joan calls when John dies. Um, My mother was both John and Joan's literary agent. And I I, I don't think it's an accident that she called my mother. Yes, she was a very close friend. And yes, she was the agent. But Joan also knew my mother is the person you call when you're in an emergency situation. She's going to take care of things. And she's not going to 
cry in a way that she's not going to be able to manage herself. My father was more vulnerable emotionally than my mother. Yeah, you write that even though your father cultivated the pristine and protected sanctity of your childhood, even though he was the one you'd go to for reassurance when you had a worry, you never felt entirely secure about your father. It seems like your mother was certainly much more disciplined than your father. Absolutely. My father, he always had this cough that worried me. The kids would try to get him to quit smoking, and he would get very angry and say, no, I'm fine. My parents live until their 90s, and they, my father smoked. I'll quit when I'm older. So I always worried about his health in that way. I just didn't like the way that cough sounded. I also always worried about his mood because I could see. Uh, I didn't know what to label it. I didn't know what to call it. Uh, today, we would say that he was suffering from untreated depression. Uh, he would get into kind of quiet, dark moods or sometimes, not often, but sometimes, he would get irritable. He had a temper. He could get angry, particularly at my sister, who was just a little bit more of a difficult child. If she would spill her milk, he might get angry or she would complain or she would talk back and he would get angry. And so I just always felt when I entered a room, my father's face lit up. When I was with him, he was calmer, he was happier, and he seemed more secure. So from a very young age, I sensed that I was almost what we would call today, like I was my father's Prozac in a way, helping him manage his moods. Which is a tremendous responsibility for you know, an eight, nine, ten-year-old. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me so much about your story is that there are some bigger secrets in it, but the secrets in it really have to do with what is left unexpressed, what is left unspoken, um, which is a more subtle kind of secret keeping, right? Like you, you were yes. you were the member of your family who was really never going to say anything that was going to rock the boat um, for any of them. Absolutely. I viewed myself as my sister's protector. I was only 14 months older than Claire. Uh, but she was fragile. She would cry when my parents would go out or when they would go away and I would be comforting her. She didn't have the filter that I had in terms of if she was upset or we would be taking a trip. She'd say, we have to stop the car. I'm, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm, and I really admired her ability to advocate for her needs and to say how she was feeling. But because she did that so openly, it almost hardened me in my role of being, okay, my parents need one child who's easy. My parents need one child who's not going to complain. My parents need one child who's just going to be that buoyant, happy child. And I was born that way. And I should say, you know, it's important uh, to say that my parents cast me in this role, but the role wasn't a stretch, right? I didn't cry when I was a baby. Everybody always talked about that in the family lore. My sister was very difficult. She didn't sleep through the night. My parents were at their wit's end. Claire would have tantrums. And everybody from our babysitters to my brother from my father's first marriage, you know, would talk about how, oh, little easy for soul. She was always so sweet and easy and she never cried. And I took that role seriously. And I love what you say about it. It was almost like I couldn't voice any feelings of worry or uh, dissatisfaction or 
this is hard for me, anything like that. I had to keep those things, even from myself. I know you talk often in this podcast about these different types of secrets. And I was almost keeping it for myself, how hard this was at times for me to always have to play that role of the good girl. Priscilla is 10 years old. The tensions between her parents have been mounting. They aren't getting along. Even when they go on vacation together, Priscilla wonders, what do they do while they're away? They really don't have much in common. But one thing has been clear. They've promised Priscilla and Claire that no matter what, they'll never get a divorce. But then, one October night in 1980, Priscilla hears her parents arguing in the kitchen, and is filled with a sense of doom. This foreboding feeling is borne out when her parents sit their daughters down at the kitchen table and announce that they're going to have a trial separation. I remember my sister got worried and thought it had something to do with court or the legal system, you know, what daddy's going on trial, what, and my mother said, no, 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 we're going to be living in separate places, and when Claire started to look upset, she reassured her, and she said, you know, it's just kind of like an experiment, we're just trying it out, we're seeing, and I knew in that instant that it was not an experiment, it was not a trial, that what I had most dreaded for a long time was going to happen. And I will say also that, you know, this is 1980. We're starting to enter the era where more and more people that would have stayed married 10, 20 years ago are splitting up. And a number of their friends, couples that we used to hang out with had split up. And so this is one of the reasons why Claire and I start asking them, right, are you going to split up? And then they would have these kind of fiery arguments where they would yell at each other. And and after those arguments, we would ask them. And I think, you know, one thing that I do want to say about their marriage, they had two major things in common. One, their children. They adored their children. They loved being parents. I could tell that they were in very invested in the family and the larger family unit, bringing the grandparents together. My mother loved my brother from my father's first marriage. Um, And I think my mother appreciated what a wonderful father my father was, enabling her to go out and have this major career because he loved taking care of us and playing with us and reading to us and doing all those things that she wasn't that interested in doing with us. And at the same time, they were both passionate about art and literature and that a life devoted to the arts could be meaningful. They had both broken from their families of origin. Both sets of grandparents were Republican. Both sets of grandparents had businessman or lawyer, right, fraternal figures. Uh, And my parents bonded, I think, over that. We're both escaping from the oppressiveness of, for my mother, small town Illinois, for my father, Russian Jewish immigrant parents living in Flatbush and saying, a critic? How can you make money being a critic? That doesn't, that's not a job, right? And they believed in each other's work. My mother thought my father was a genius. My dad was wholly admiring of my mother, supportive of her having a major career. Not that many men were at that time. So my father being sort of ahead of his time and taking on more of the child rearing and just caring for us and supporting her, I think that's what held them together. But their personalities were not compatible, ultimately. And when my mother announces this, I knew not only that this was going to be irrevocable, 
they were going to split and not just separate, but divorce. I knew that my father did not want this because I could always sense from a very young age that my father loved my mother far more than my mother loved my father, if she really loved him at all. I knew she revered him intellectually, but I never saw any physical affection between the two of them. And I did feel often as a little girl, my father wanting my mother's approval and my mother not giving him the affection that I could sense that he wanted. And that night when you leave the kitchen, you go into your father's study and he tells you as much. He's crying and he tells you, I don't want this. He says, I don't want this. I don't want to lose our family. I went after him. My mother took Claire back to bed and I could have gone to bed, but I felt I need to go check on my father. I need to go see if he's okay. And he was crying and I almost never seen him cry. I mean, I'd seen tears in his eyes and like sentimental moments in movies maybe. Um, and he was heaving with crying. And immediately I was just hugging him and I was trying not to cry myself because I didn't want to make it worse for him. But it wasn't, that wasn't a revelation to me when he said that, exactly as you said, Danny. I knew, I mean, I went there and I had it confirmed. My father did not want this, my mother wanted this, and I could tell from the expression on her face that she was out. There was no chance that he was going to be able to convince her. And for a couple of months, he did try. And it was very painful to watch his fumbling around, trying to praise her. And he'd say, oh, you know, I've smoked only 10 cigarettes today, right? Or I'm not going to bet on sports anymore. Or any of these things that had bothered her have been issues. I knew as a little child, those were cosmetic things. Like, that's not what it really was. It was something deeper. There was some deeper fault line between them. We'll be right back. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. When Priscilla's parents separate, the change is jarring for the whole family. The life and home they all once shared is now fractured. So, you know, we had moved into this really grand apartment two years earlier, and my father had had this incredible office with this huge white desk that looked like a president could sit behind it. And all of a sudden, he doesn't have a home at all. We're not told where he's staying. He moves out in January. And I assumed, you know, he's basically what we would today call couch surfing, staying with different people, friends, for uh, students, former students. And my sister and I are only able to see him for a quick lunch or a quick dinner at a neighborhood restaurant, maybe once or twice a week. And he is alternately kind of shaky emotionally. Like as soon as he would see us, he would look like he was about to cry, or he would get irritable because he would say, girls, you have to split a dish. And Claire would say, no, I want more food. That's not enough food. I want more. And he would get annoyed. And so I would be sort of kicking her, trying to get her to stop. And then I would notice that my father was taking the containers in a McDonald's that have like the packets of salt and pepper or the ketchup packets and the mustard packets and pouring them into his shoulder bag or sugar, right? And I'm thinking, he can't even afford a box of sugar. And meanwhile, my mother's career is going better than ever. She's doing a lot of business in California. We go and we stay for the summer in Brentwood, in Joan Didion and John Donna's house, and we're going to all these movie premieres, and she's getting even more glamorous. My mother seems free. My mother seems lighter. She seems happier. And my father is overcome by this profound depression. He'd always teetered on the verge of falling into that. One night, my father had come back to the apartment. My mom was in California on business, and she allowed my father to come into the apartment and stay with us, and we would have a couple of nights with him. And we're playing a game with Claire, and Claire spills her juice. And my father had been warning her, you know, watch out for that glass, you know, don't put it so near the board. And it spills and he yells at her and she starts crying and he gets up and he stalks out and he walks back into the room that had once been his office. And I comfort her and I go after him and he's immediately contrite. And he always was um, about his temper. He didn't think it was a good thing. He never felt justified in raging. He was always immediately apologetic. 
And he just looks absolutely distraught. And he says, you know that I love you girls more than anything in the world, right? And I'm so sorry, you know, that I didn't mean to get that angry. You know, it bothered me because I told her not to do it. So he's basically apologizing. And then he looks out into space and he says, you know, sometimes I think I kill myself if it wasn't for you girls. And that's a moment where it just clicks in me. You know, you could describe that as a secret that I kind of perceived, but I didn't really know it for sure until that night. My father's survival is my responsibility. And I am the most important thing to him. And I have to do everything in my power to keep him alive. You're in fifth grade. Yep, I'm in fifth grade. You are in fifth grade. I'm curious, Priscilla, like what did it feel like, that huge effort to push away everything that felt dangerous or, you know, that felt like a live wire? There was such vigilance on your part. Vigilance is a great word. It's something that I think we don't even often recognize in ourselves until we're through it. I mean, it's something that becomes so habitual that you don't even notice that you are constantly uh, on the alert. Like I had this preternatural ability as a very young child to sense when my father's mood was going dark, when Claire was about to lose it and have a tantrum. And I think what gets you through it is feeling this is my role. Like, this is what it's like to be alive. I don't know if that makes sense, but, you know, it's like, this is what it means to be a human. I've been assigned this role and it's what makes life meaningful for me. Like, these are my people. These are the people I love. I am blessed by having a steadier temperament than they have. I am not as prone to crying. I am not as vulnerable to moods. You know, I'm just lucky that I'm born with this temperament where I'm more buoyant. I'm generally an optimistic person. This is true and this has been true throughout my life. I'm not prone to darkness. It's easy for me to spot if somebody's feeling left out, if somebody's feeling afraid, and I'll go in and I'll make them feel better. And I think, you know, that ability has served me very well, but it is, it can be very, very exhausting. And I remember coming back from meals with my dad where I'd think, okay, I got a 98 on the math quiz. I'm going to tell him that. And I'm going to tell him about the play and how I got this part. And I'm not going to tell him, you know, about this this mean girl at school because I don't want him to worry about me. So I'm just going to tell him all these good things. And I'd almost make a list in my mind of all the things I was going to tell him. And then I'd come home and I remember just sometimes going into my room and just lying on the bed and just feeling completely exhausted, like emptied. And one of the ways that I, I would say maybe this was, you know, a form of rejuvenation and also distraction, but as I'm getting a little bit older, my father didn't allow us to watch any TV except uh, PBS. And then he allowed us in a weird exception to watch the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. And all of a sudden my dad's out of the house and Claire and I were like, let's watch Love Boat. Let's watch Fantasy Island. Let's start watching all these fun things that our father didn't let us do. And I thought at one point, it's almost like sort of papering over the loss with these fun, you know, and I'm entering adolescence. Let's go to the Love's drugstore and buy some Bonnie Bell lip smackers. We couldn't tell daddy about that. 
I genuinely enjoyed these things. And I, you know, I liked going to Canal Jean and buying an overcoat and thinking, Daddy wouldn't want to see my Mick Jagger button, you know, because he doesn't approve of Mick Jagger. And cultivating my new kind of adolescent fun life as a distraction from, uh, and, and something that could be just sort of more mindless because I'm, when I'm with my father and, you know, to a certain extent with my sister and with my mom, I'm curating myself around my mom. I'm not telling my mom how depressed my dad is. I'm not telling my mom I'm sad that I miss my father. I'm pretending with everyone and I'm pretending to myself that I'm okay because I need to be okay because other people are not okay. And I need to help them because I'm more okay than they are, I guess was another way that I would think about it, right? What do I have to complain about? My poor father, he doesn't even have a bedroom, right? There's this list that you include in your book that's really just heart-wrenching, and it's from a diary that you kept in middle school, and here's a page from that diary. Things not to do when I'm with Daddy. One, don't cry. Two, don't complain. Three, don't be difficult. Four, don't tell him anything but good news. Five, don't mention Mommy. And six, don't expect him to be the daddy of old. Yeah. When I found that, I had no memory of writing that. None. It just hit me like, wow, um, this is a little girl trying to codify rules for herself in a way trying to give myself structure almost like if I write it down it'll remind me but also it maybe gives me more of a sense of control uh, over what I I felt I needed to do in an uncontrollable situation around the time Priscilla writes this list in her diary she discovers a letter It's just sitting there, out in the open, written by her father to his first wife, Esther. The letter contains some really unsettling and disturbing imagery and language. How does a child process something like this? Though Priscilla has made a habit out of caretaking, protecting the minds and hearts of everyone around her, in this case, she's so perturbed and in many ways scared by what she reads in the letter that she uncharacteristically doesn't keep the secret. She tells her mom about the letter. I don't remember how soon after my mother came back that I told her. I knew I know that I told her when Claire was not around because I knew it would worry Claire and it would upset Claire. And it was a letter that shocked me, um, not only in terms of its graphic details. My father, we would now call, had BDSM tendencies, wanted to be dominated, was submissive, was asking Esther. And I'd only met Esther once or twice. Like, she was my brother's mother. And I adored my brother, 12 years older, though, so he didn't really live with us growing up. I didn't really know Esther. It freaked me out that my father was writing to Esther and asking her to be sexually involved with him, like that in and of itself felt really weird to me. And then the details of what he was asking her to do also kind of shocked me. And I think it unsettled me so much that I felt I have to see if my mother understands this at all. Like I did not know how to make sense of it. Why is he reaching back out to Esther? He hasn't been with Esther in years. Why is he asking? Esther to do these things. And I think to me, you know, as a 10-year-old, 
asking to be dominated felt to me like a cry for help. And I thought, this is not something that I can handle on my own. Like, I need to tell my mom about this. And the biggest surprise of all was that my mom was not at all surprised by it. I was expecting her to say, what? He's, what is he saying? Oh my gosh, that sounds crazy. And she's like, oh, no. oh, wow, 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 yeah. You know, I've been trying to protect you girls from stuff like this for years. And I just look at her and I'm like, what? And she says, yeah, you know, he had all these pornographic magazines and he had this stash of pictures and I would sometimes find them under the cushions of the sofa. You and Claire would have just been there like a minute before. And I worry, oh my gosh, you know, your grandparents are going to find them. You're going to find them. I've been protecting you girls for years. And she was angry at him. I could tell that he'd left this out and that I'd been exposed to it. And I'm just very calm while she was talking. I sat there and I just sort of listened. And when I told her, I didn't present it in an emotionally overwhelmed way. I just said, mommy, I found this letter and I'm wondering what you think about it. And I sort of just tried to describe it, tried to summarize it to her. And then she said... You know, I never did any of those things with him that he was asking Esther to do. And so I think that it suddenly clicked in her head. She's like, is my daughter going to start thinking that, like, that was our sexual relationship? And so she felt she had to tell me that. And then we both agreed we're never going to tell anyone else this. Claire would get extremely upset, would not be able to handle it. And very shortly after this, my mother initiated a conversation with me in which she told me that my father had had multiple affairs during their marriage, that some of the affairs had been with his students, graduate students. It was very upsetting to me that he'd had affairs, and especially with students. I remember thinking, that is disgusting and vile, and I, even though I knew that a lot of my parents' friends had had affairs, I was aghast at that. But I remember thinking even more when my mother said, and you know, in a way, the affairs were sort of a relief for me because these women were sort of taking him off my hands. The thing that's so striking, Priscilla, is that this confiding in you, 10-year-old you, your father making that statement about, you know, if it wasn't for you girls, I, I would kill myself, your mother telling you, you know, even, oh, I didn't do those things with him and he had affairs, the kind of turning you into each of them in very different ways, but into their confidant. Yes, absolutely. And confidant is a great word because I think one of the reasons why, as my mother is telling me all these things, I'm not more upset is that I was kind of flattered that she was telling me that she was confiding in me and she was singling me out as the mature child. You know, you're so strong and you're so mature and you're so smart. She would always say to me things like, you can handle things. And it made me feel proud. And it made me feel closer to my mother because as a young child, I had been much closer to my father, partly because he was around more, but also because we're just more alike and was genuinely invested in this world of childhood that my sister and I created and cultivated. And my mother felt more adult. And now in this moment, it was more like we were on the same, not the same level, but we were closer to each other. She was sharing her own vulnerability with me. And that felt good because I felt I understand my mother better. 
And I still, to this day, am grateful for that in the sense that it might sound odd, but she trusted me and she felt that she wanted me to understand why she had ended the marriage. And, you know, I remember talking about this with a great family friend um, when I was growing up and she loved both of my parents and she understood both of them. And she's someone that I could always speak to who wouldn't come down on one side or the other. And I remember her saying to me, you know, when is the right time to find this kind of stuff out? Whatever time it is, it's never the right time to find it out. And I do feel that my mother was genuinely not just venting to me. She was trying to help me in a way make sense of what had happened. Why had this seemingly perfect family uh, broken? Why was my father, who was this sort of magical, childlike being, and I mean childlike in both the senses of being vulnerable, but also in the sense of being um, adventurous and playful and delightful to be around and, and a joy to have. Why had he been expelled? And I think she probably felt Priscilla doesn't get it at all. And I want her to understand. So each time your mother disclosed more difficult and damning things about your father, she tells you not to share it with Claire. And what struck me there, and she says to you that she's tired of deception and she's tired of secrets. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, she is asking you to keep a secret. Yes. And she didn't say this explicitly, but I also felt I can't talk about this with my grandparents. I can't talk about this with my babysitters. I can't talk about this with my friends. This is like loaded, dangerous information. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune into what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a hot July night in 1981, and the family's getting together for Claire's birthday. They're having dinner at a restaurant followed by a Broadway musical. At the time, Priscilla's parents are deep into their bitter divorce negotiations, and animosity is palpable. But they try to keep it together for their girls, try being the operative word. So he rushes in, and I'm starting to get really worried. And I see him, and he was sweating, but I could see that he had dressed in his nicest clothes, and he was not typically a particularly natty fellow. So I was sort of touched by seeing that he had this... He was dressed up, and he was rushing in, and he went to sit down in a chair, and he missed the chair, and he fell on the floor. And Claire exclaimed, and the waiters are rushing over, And I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, this has gone from bad to worse. And he's sprawled on the floor and he's quickly getting up. And we're trying to, and I start nattering on the way I do about all these good things and not wanting this to turn into a scene. Um, Of course, it was imprinted in my brain as one of the most painful scenes of my childhood. And, you know, we had to get through the dinner because we had, we were going to see Barnum on Broadway. So there was that moment that was exceptionally poignant. And I could see my mother just looking irritated and almost contemptuous, like, oh, of course, right? He's late, and then he falls on the floor. And then we're sitting in the musical, and there is a love song. And I start to hear something, and I look, and my father is crying. And he's trying to stifle it, and I can tell he doesn't want anyone to notice it. And I make noise. I rustle my program and I uh, pile up my sweater so that I'm not, he doesn't worry that I'm seeing him and I'm trying to protect him from uh, what I know will be my mother's contempt for, you know, what she might call or think of as his kind of sloppy sentimentality. I'm protecting him from her judgment and I'm protecting him from knowing that I know. And I think that's similar to you know, the letter. I never told him that I found that letter. Never told him. Never told him that I heard all these things about what he did um, during the marriage. Never, ever told him that he knew he had affairs, any of it. Again, you're in, you're in sixth grade. It's so young. I kept on, as I, was, as I was reading your book, thinking, oh, surely by now she's, you know, a sophomore in, in high school. <laughs> no, no, like, no, this is all happening to a very 
a very young person, and you had to be so careful. You would hide any interest in popular culture or fashion. You would hide your body, and you're beginning to enter puberty, and, you know, just wear the baggiest clothes that you possibly could. And, you know, so careful to just not rock his world in any way. Yep. It was certainly at this point that there was no hope that they were going to get back together and that my father was asking for money from my mom. Really unusual and shameful in my mother's eyes. Like, why would a man ask a woman for money? Like, there was something very shameful about that. Your mother never sees how your father is living during this whole period of time. She never picks you up there. She doesn't want to know. Nope, and I don't want her to know. And I think... Maybe I should have told her because then maybe she would have been more willing to give him the money. He did start to have apartments that we could sleep over in. You know, the first one, there was no furniture. There was a room that we could sleep in, but he couldn't afford to buy us beds. And so we would sleep in sleeping bags on the floor. Uh, And I remember my back just killing and just not wanting to say anything. And... You know, Claire and I going to this series of temporary crash pads or sublets that he had and how dingy they were and how almost unsafe some of them felt in the lobbies. You know, this was still the early 80s um, on some of these side streets and just feeling, I don't want my mother to know. I don't want my mother to look down on my father. And my father never spoke about my mother to us, ever. If it came up in conversation, if we slipped and brought her up, he would always look stricken. And so I would really try not to talk about her. And because it was New York City, we were able to go by ourselves. We didn't need to be dropped off or picked up because we'd walk, you know, five blocks here, take the bus. I mean, we were taking the bus when we were eight and seven years old. Talk about young, um, out on their own in the big city. So she didn't need to, but I could have asked her to. And she would have, but I didn't want her to know. I didn't want to expose my father to her judgment, and I didn't want her to feel guilty. I was protecting her, too. I didn't want her to feel guilty. It's interesting that your father never spoke of her, but she did speak of your father. Yes. Around this time, Alice Miller's seminal book about surviving narcissistic parents The Drama of the Gifted Child, has recently been published. Priscilla's mother gobbles it up, along with millions of other readers. And she uses what she learns, or thinks she learns, about narcissism to pit Priscilla against her father, saying that he doesn't really love her because he's a narcissist, and what he loves is the false self Priscilla has created for him. But what Priscilla's mother doesn't realize is that she, too, has been exhibiting narcissistic behavior by asking Priscilla to create and maintain a false self for her as well. I think that book, I, we, we can really cannot overstate what an explosion that book made. And I remember friends of hers calling to ask if she'd read it and talking about it with all these friends. And she showed me some passages in the book and she did it in a very loving, protective way. Like, oh my gosh, this must've been so hard for you. And um, it's a lot of pressure to have to have a false self and and all of this. And she's doing it in a way where it's like a light bulb moment for her. And my father was not a narcissist. He really was not. She got it wrong. She was wrong. And Alice Miller, in a way, got it wrong. 
about that in the sense that the dynamic that had been set up for me as a kid was almost like what we would call a codependent dynamic, where I was a parentified child. I was taking care of my parents' needs, both my mother and my father. And that's what she didn't see in that moment. Like, I'm telling you something very disturbing. Isn't that, in a way, implying that I have to have a false self in this moment? Because I love my father. I adore my father. Our love was real. But I'm not going to cry about it in front of you when you're saying this to me. But I think that it was a moment where she was kind of thinking, oh, that's why I was so tired during my marriage to him. Because it was really about her experience of him. And she was wrong about that, too, in the sense that it wasn't a narcissist. It was more of a codependency dynamic where he was insecure and she was a nurturer and a fixer and a solver. And she was taking care of him. And that's exhausting for the codependent. But I feel like that's what she was thinking. Oh, wow, light bulb moment. Now I get it. Um, that's why I felt so tired when I was married to him, because he was so insecure and he was. And, and also, you know, it occurs to me now, she was probably still trying to assuage her feelings of guilt about ending the marriage. And I think on a deep level, looking back, she did love my father. I mean, I've had so many family friends family members tell me, you know, there was a love between them. It wasn't a romantic love on her part, but there was love. And I think she was still struggling with that guilt of breaking a family and plunging this man into a deep despair. And so it probably assuaged her guilt to think, oh, you know, he didn't really love me. He was loving my false self. You see, and then she was extrapolating from that and saying, oh, wow, I felt a lot of pressure. Priscilla must have felt that, too. And I don't want her to make the same mistake I did. I don't want her to end up with a very insecure, dependent man having to be stroking their ego and taking care of them all the time. Another way Priscilla indirectly takes care of her parents is by excelling academically. She knows this will make both her parents happy and even unite them in some way, since education is one of the few values they share. They don't want her to become an actress or a writer, no. They want her to be a scholar. So that's the path she takes. She even hears her mom and dad using friendly voices with one another, a rare occurrence these days when they're discussing her report card. Now, flash forward a few years to 1986. Priscilla's father has just published his book, Faith, Sex, Mystery. The book is dedicated to Priscilla and her sister Claire, but they don't read it. Often children of writers don't, as a way to protect themselves. But try as they might, the girls cannot be completely shielded from the book or its contents. One day, they're on a flight together, reading magazines. Claire is reading Vogue, and in it, there's a piece called Spiritual Striptease. The piece is a takedown of their father's book. In the piece, the critic writes about masochistic fantasies. And it's just this horrifying download of information for the girls, even for Priscilla, who knew more than her sister did about their dad, but not this much. After Claire reads the piece, she wordlessly passes it to Priscilla. Here they were, just thinking they were casually reading Vogue. And then, just like that, secrets about their father are uncovered. And I remember it had Cindy Crawford on the cover. It was it was our fun plane reading. You know, it was like the last place that you would ever think that you would find something like this. 
And, you know, the book, it was reviewed on the front cover of the New York Times book review. He was on NPR uh, with Terry Gross. It was everywhere. But this was like a place where we thought maybe we'd be spared. <laughs> maybe we wouldn't have to be dealing with it. And it quoted extensively and in a sort of disingenuous way, the worst passages as far as Claire would have been concerned, right? Because she knew something about it having some masochism stuff in it, but not really. And she hadn't read that letter and we'd never filled her in along the way. And she's reading this quote and it's just horrifying. And, and I remember also we're both thinking, oh God, this is a really bad review. This is going to upset him. It's not fun to see your hair being taken down in print. That review still, it, it haunts me. I ripped out the page and I balled it up. And then I said to Claire, oh, well, don't worry. You know, Daddy will never read Vogue. And there wasn't the internet then. So if he didn't have a physical copy of it, he's never going to see this. He's never going to hear about this. So an- yet another way of kind of just burying something or absolutely you know, protecting him and keeping it a secret. Yes. Six months later, he meets Yasuko. I get into Yale early that fall of 87. And then I'm at Yale with him. I can have lunch with him or dinner with him every week. And he's doing wonderfully. He finally finds his permanent home on 108th Street near Columbia. He's able to buy an apartment. Everything is going really well. And he's able to be very strong and supportive and wonderful for me when I'm a student. We talk about my papers. We have these delightful lunches and dinners, and everything is good. I guess a a blessing during that early time is that your father was in a much better place in his life. He had met uh, and fallen in love with Yasuko. It was complicated. She was married to somebody else, had a job as a professor there. So this was a, a hard one relationship, but a real, you know, a real love story. Oh, yes. Genuine joy and happiness and, you know, being with his soulmate. So there was a period of time there where you were worrying about other things, but you weren't worrying about your father. Yes. Though Priscilla is having tremendous academic success at Yale, at some point, her nerves are frayed. She's suffering on mental and physical overload. For once, she cannot perform perfectly. So she steps away and takes an academic leave. I needed to hit pause. I started having a lot of health problems when I was in high school, like sinus infections um, that I I just couldn't get rid of, strep throat, all sorts of sort of upper respiratory stuff and also aching stuff in my body. After my first year at Yale, I was in an honors program. I won the prize as the best student in this program. And I remember, you know, getting this letter that said that I won the prize and feeling, oh, my parents are going to be so thrilled about this. And and every grade that I got back that was good and every paper that I got back, oh, I'm going to mimeograph this and give it to my parents and this is going to make them happy. And I just remember feeling empty inside in that summer between what would have been freshman and sophomore year. I went back to school for my sophomore year. I was there for a few weeks. I got sick again. I was exhausted And I felt listless in my studies. And I said, I've got to take some time off. And I think that was the first moment where I stepped off that, you know, good girl fast track. um, Because part of being the good girl in my family was being precocious. That was part of the legend around me in the family that I read when I was three, that I got into Yale early admission, 
that I was moving along in a smooth trajectory of success. And I was like, no. And I was terrified to tell my parents. And they both actually took it really, really well. And that was the first indication. It's okay to say I have needs. It's okay to say I need to slow down. And I went into Freudian analysis. Uh, and I think it was, you know, all of the stuff, the residue of the split catching up with me. The problem was that the analyst that I went to was my mother's analyst. Yes, you heard that right. Her mother's analyst. And it isn't just that Dr. T is her mother's analyst, but also that Priscilla ends up knowing a lot about Dr. T. His wife is ill with cancer, and Priscilla, in what Freud might have had a field day analyzing, feels she needs to take care of him. And most amazingly, he regularly calls her by the wrong name. And she doesn't correct him because she doesn't want to hurt his feelings. He was such a kind, wonderful, wise man. And there was a lot that he told me that I held on to. He was the first person to say, you are going to be a writer and not an academic writer. His wife was dying. His wife lived in Florida. He was kind of flying up to do his sessions near Grand Central. He treated a lot of famous writers. My mother sent a number of people to him. And I just knew he was like this, you know, wonderful man. And I just found myself thinking, oh my gosh, I don't want him to know that I noticed that he fell asleep. I mean, isn't it a repeat of yes. what I did with my dad? It's crazy. Did that occur to you at the time? No, definitely not. But Priscilla actually does get the help she needs from this doctor. And her time off from school turns out to be very restorative. She goes back to Yale feeling much better. But the reprieve from worrying about her father is brief. That worry returns. I guess we could say it's almost like a return to having to worry about him is when in 1992, uh, the summer, I graduated from Yale in 1993. He marries Yasuko in Japan and they're going to have another wedding in New York. So we didn't go to Japan for that little wedding. He has a very severe heart attack in Japan. And they make him quit smoking, which is a good thing. But for a while, it was not looking good, and he was not in good health. But ultimately, it becomes a positive because he's becoming healthier. He's going to lose weight. He's going to stop eating so unhealthily. He never took care of himself. He never exercised. He ate red meat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and bacon bits in between. Positive changes are happening for Priscilla as well. She's just finished her undergraduate degree, and she decides to pursue a doctorate in English literature. During this time, she also meets and falls in love with a man named Richard. They get engaged and eventually marry. But as time moves forward, her worry about her father continues to underscore her life. So in 1997, when he went in to do his checkup on his heart, they took an x-ray. I was in graduate school. Uh, and they found that he had terminal lung cancer. I just turned 27. I had been married for two years. My mother-in-law had died of cancer the year before. And my father is given seven months to live at this point. In that moment, when we get this news that he has lung cancer that has metastasized to his brain, you know, we thought, oh, he quit. He quit five years earlier, but it was too late. And those cigarettes that I always feared would kill him were going to kill him. And when you tell your mother that um, that he has terminal cancer, her response is, alas, Dick never took care of himself. 
Yeah, I mean, she's sort of like, it was expected in a way. For her and for me, I mean, I we just always had this feeling that he, he had this nonchalance because his parents both lived well into their 90s. There was no cancer in the family. And he, ju- he was one of those people who just banked on his good genes. And, you know, he basically did everything a, pr- a person could do if they want to get a heart attack. But it's still, even though I had always feared it, it still felt unreal when it actually happened. And at this time, Danny, you know, when we talk about secrets, I thought my father was 72 years old at this time. My sister and I went to a doctor's appointment with him a couple of months after he was given this very grim prognosis. And this was like a second opinion doctor's appointment. It was sort of an intake appointment with an expert at Columbia Presbyterian. And the doctor was just running through, you know, a series of rote questions. And Claire and I are sitting there listening attentively. And the doctor says, so how old are you? And my father pauses and it's weird. And his voice kind of cracks in a strange way. And he says 74. And Claire and I look at each other and we're like, And then later, when we're home, we go to Yasiko and we're worried because my father had lung cancer that was in the brain. And we think, oh my gosh, this is a symptom that he's really adult, that the cancer, you know, is doing something to his brain. And we said, you know, we told the doctor he was 74. And she says, she looks at us calmly and says, he is 74. And it's clear that she doesn't want to talk about it. It's clear that she knows that we didn't know that she's asserting that this is the case, and it's a secret that he had shared with her. And this is a very highly wrought secret. We call my mom. We call his friends. No one that we talked to knew this. He, my father, 1925, was like a date that he would say all the time. And he was like, who's who in America? Richard Gilman, born 1925. Uh, it was everywhere. Uh, and he would use it. He would refer to it frequently. And he had this whole thing about how he graduated from high school when he was 16 because he was precocious. He went to college when he was 16. And, uh, you know, we made jokes about it. We're like, well, if you're going to lop years off your age, why only do two, right? <laughs> why would you go for five or eight or ten? And uh, we never mentioned it to him. We never acknowledged to him that we noticed it. He didn't seem aware that he was outing it in front of us, probably because he was just in so much fear about his cancer and just focusing on the doctor, and he just didn't think about it in that moment. But we never discussed it with him. Yeah, it's um, unsurprising because it's, it's it's a pattern. You weren't going to start discussing those things no. you know, at, at that late date. <laughs> yes, Exactly. Despite the very grim prognosis, both Priscilla's life and her father's go on. Priscilla and her husband start a family. She's hired as an assistant professor at Yale and eventually moves to Vassar. She's 32 years old, doing impressive work she isn't even sure she wants to be doing, and is the mother of a three-year-old and an infant. And Priscilla's father? He surpasses every prediction and statistic and lives with stage four cancer for another nine years. And more secrets keep tumbling out, this time in the form of a manuscript in which he describes his sexual escapades, including sleeping with hundreds of women and several men. We were in Japan, staying in their apartment. And my father was in the hospital at this point. And Nikki, my brother, was sleeping in my father's office. And one day he called me in and he said, and he was sort of, gleefully smiling because my brother is gay 
And, you know, half of my parents' friends were gay, you know, and it was never a big deal. My brother came out in 1978. It was all completely fine. So there was no, there would have been no reason for my father to hide this. Why would he have hidden this? Why is this something that's a secret? And Nikki says, look at this. You believe this? And we're looking at it. We're thinking, who, who was it? Because my father was in the Marines in World War II. He was on an island in the South Pacific. We're thinking, was it was it a Marine? Was it W.A. Jordan? Because my <laughs> father had a famous story about how W.A. Jordan made a pass at him. I was like, maybe he took W.A. Jordan up on that. You know, was it Harold Brodsky, who was famous, his good friend, and then died of AIDS? Right? So we're thinking, who could this have been? And I've since, Danny, asked many close friends because no one knows. We don't know. Priscilla's father dies at age 83. The Yale School of Drama hosts his memorial, and prior to this, a package arrives from Japan. It's from Yasuko, and it's addressed to both Priscilla and her sister Claire. It was a package of things that he had taken. So he ended up living permanently in Japan because Yasuko had better health insurance than he had, and he was at home in a hospital bed the last few years of his life. So when they sold the apartment in New York and moved to Japan, he took what he could. And this was a manila envelope that had girls on it. And it was filled to bursting with photographs of us that had, you could see the tape marks on the edges. And I remember them hanging on, on walls of different apartments that he'd been in. Um, it was envelopes that had our hair in them. Um, it's in girls' hair. Uh, programs from plays and shows that I'd been in notes that I'd written him over the years um, because I would often give him a note when I left after a lunch or a dinner with him saying, you know, I love you so much, Daddy, and and don't worry, you're going to see us soon and all this. And it was just the evidence of our love for him, but also his love for us, that he had kept everything. He had kept all this memorabilia, these tiny little notes, you know, on like a, almost like a post-it note size. And he had this poem that I had written when I was nine called Loneliness in that envelope as well. He also said, you know, this is the evidence of your father's great love for you. And um, maybe she said daddy's, your daddy's great love for you. She always called him your daddy because that's what we called him. We never called him father. We never called him dad. We called him daddy. Always. Sometime after her father's death, Priscilla asks her mother to put her reasons for marrying her father down in writing. She yearns for clarity, if not closure. And Lynn sends Priscilla a note, which reads, Why did I marry him? Well, he had a brilliant and refined mind, which I respected and admired. I knew he'd be an excellent father for you girls. Basically, he was a kind and ethical man. It was something that I had been waiting for 40 years for her to say to me. And I knew about the brilliant and refined mind. I knew she felt that. And I had been told in various ways that she did think he would be an excellent father, although I hadn't heard enough of that since they split. So that was important. But the basically, he was a kind and ethical man. You know, I thought, thank you for finally acknowledging it. It wasn't that I needed to hear it because I doubted it. I always knew my father was a basically kind and ethical man. And, you know, I had those moments when I was younger, when I heard the secrets about his affairs with students, and I was absolutely disgusted and horrified by it. But as I grew and I, and I came to understand 
the complexities of our parents, that he was a human being, that he had failings, that he was in a terribly unhappy marriage to someone who didn't love him. And, you know, another thing that my mother revealed to me when I was in college was that she had never been in love with my father and that she had told my father that she wasn't in love with him and he had asked her to marry him anyway. And he said, passion fades, but companionship lasts. And when I figured that out, how terrible for my mother to be in a marriage to somebody she wasn't in love with, how terrible for my father to be in, in a marriage to someone he knew wasn't in love with him. And he was in love with her. And he was medicating depression by smoking. He was medicating those feelings of inadequacy through affairs. You know, another thing that I think is important to say is that my father kept his sexuality secret from most people. And when he wrote that memoir, where he acknowledged his sexuality, he wrote in the book about being unfaithful to his wives and how guilty he felt about it. He wrote about going to prostitutes to get them to do what the women, his girlfriends and wives didn't want to do. I think that is what enabled him to find the woman that you described as his soulmate. He got over, to a large extent, the shame and the guilt. He wasn't keeping secrets anymore. He was telling the truth in a book. Now, it wasn't the complete truth because he was still supposedly, you know, born in 1925 when that book came out. But a lot of the secrets came into the light. And I think that's what enabled him to get the confidence to be accepted and to meet and share with Yasuko because she knew all his secrets. She knew about his age. She knew about the men because that was a book he was working on and she was helping him with it. And he wanted to publish that book. If he had not gotten so sick, perhaps that would have also been in a book that was published. And now it is, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right, yeah. in, in the fullness of time. Yes. Now it is, right? Here's Priscilla reading from her beautiful love letter to her complicated father. In this moment, she's a frightened child awakened by a thunderstorm, being offered a gift. My father didn't give me a hug and a kiss and send me back to sleep. He brought me to the window. In the face of the unexpected, the frightening, the disorienting, he was a madcap sportscaster, a wise sage, an ebullient enthusiast. As one arm embraced me, the other helped me face a world beyond him, a world of challenge and intensity and wonder. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor, and Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, check out my memoir, Inheritance.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.